So do you know what this is? This is probably uh, one of the most famous, admired, recognizable, studied paintings ever created, made by probably the most famous artist of all time. This is Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. And pre-Roman, Jessica and I had a a high value uh, to travel because we knew that would cease uh, once children came into the world. And so one of the trips that we took was to Italy, and when we were planning out our trip, we decided to end in Milan. And one of the reasons why we decided to end in Milan is to see this painting. And we uh, prepared beforehand. We got our tickets months and months in advance. You can't just show up to see this painting. You have to book way in advance because it only let 20 or 25 people in the room at a time. You have a time slot. And so we get to Milan at the end of our trip, and it's the day to go see The Last Supper. And we begin to drive there. And the thing that was shocking first was that this painting is not in a museum. It's in a convent. And so that kind of threw me off a bit. I was like, okay, that's interesting. There's nothing else there. It's only this. And we we get there. We hand over our tickets. And we go in. We get our time slot. And we're waiting. And there's a big old door. And we walk through this door. You have to go through all these, like, pressurized things in order to get in there. We walk into this door. And when you turn and you see the painting, it immediately takes your breath away. I mean, you almost stop in your tracks for a lot of reasons. One, because you're finally seeing the painting. If you love art, that is one of the best, most recognizable paintings of all time. But also, too, because it breaks your expectations if you don't know much about it. See, the first thing is that this is painted on the wall. This isn't on a canvas and a frame. This is painted on the wall in the old dining hall of this building. And so that kind of throws you off first because the texture and everything is different than you expect. The other thing is it is huge. It is 15 by 29 feet. It's a massive painting. It takes up the entire wall. And so when you walk in, all of your expectations for what you're about to experience, especially if you've seen the Mona Lisa before and you're like, wait, it's this big. When you see this, you're like, wow, the whole wall. And so you sit there and you have, you soak up all the time that you have to see it. You start to study it. You look at all of its intricacies. You're like, maybe there's some secrets because Dan Brown talked about this in Da Vinci Code and is there the V or what's happening here? You know, you're looking at all these different things. And when they move you out, you're really disappointed. You know, you're like, I I wish we could have stayed longer. This happens all the time in life, right? Your expectations get broken. And sometimes when you think about broken expectations, you think about it in a negative way. You know, you had expectations for something great and you get something lesser or it doesn't pan out. But oftentimes our expectations are broken for the better. You're awestruck. And tonight, as we continue our series, Jesus is going to come face to face with his disciples. and He's going to come face to face with his impending death as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think when you look at this text with fresh eyes, when you study it, when you kind of look at all the details and all the different aspects of it, it's going to break your expectations. Maybe you've heard this passage before. Maybe you've read it before. Maybe you've studied it before. Maybe you've heard it quoted. But there is so much here, and it should leave you breathless, awestruck, Because it is amazing what is being communicated in God's word to us in this passage tonight. So let's jump in. Here's what it says in verse 36. 
Then Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So right after the Last Supper, Jesus goes with his disciples outside of the city gates to this garden that was called Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane is on the side of the Mount of Olives. It's an olive garden. And most likely, this isn't the first time that Jesus and his disciples have visited this garden. It was probably a friend of theirs, a follower of Jesus that allowed them access whenever they were in Jerusalem to go pray there and spend time to get away from the crowds. And so they go there that evening because Jesus wants to pray. And he's in the garden, the olive trees, it's overlooking the city of Jerusalem. You can actually go visit the Garden of Gethsemane today and you can see the olive trees that would have been there when Jesus was alive and praying this fateful night. And so they're there and Jesus says, I want all of you disciples to stay here, but three of you I want to come with me. We're gonna go a little bit farther into the garden, a little bit deeper. And I want you, Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. So Peter, James, and John, you come with me. We're gonna go a little bit deeper into the garden. And it says, as they're walking deeper into the garden, Jesus began to feel sorrowful and troubled. See, the way that it's written, it causes you to recognize that there is this sudden eruption of emotion and anguish that Jesus feels, sorrow, trouble, mental anguish, emotional anguish, agony. And we know that because it says here that Jesus said that my soul is sorrowful even to death. You see, what Jesus feels in this moment that kind of causes him to stutter is so deep and is so heavy that it feels like he's going to die. You know, many of us have had moments like this in life where you feel emotions that are unexpected. You feel something that you didn't expect to feel. You are processing an emotion that you can describe as anguish or mental agony. And, And many of us here have felt emotions when you try to describe it, the only way you could describe it is darkness or horror or sorrow that feels like death. And Jesus felt that too. You know, sometimes you can feel like God doesn't relate with what I'm feeling. Well, Jesus felt that. That's why it says in Hebrews 4 that he can empathize with us in our weakness because he's been tempted just as we are. He's experienced the same things we've experienced. And so Jesus really is the man of sorrows. He has experienced sorrow that feels like he's going to die. And it says this, as he goes a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed. And so as he's feeling all of this, he tells Peter, James, and John, I want you to stay here and I want you to stay awake and I want you to watch. Because remember at the last supper, he told them that he's going to be betrayed. So you stay here and you watch. I'm going to go by myself and I'm going to go pray. And so he goes a little farther and he prays by himself. And he says this very famous statement, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, when you read this passage, when you read this statement right here, the first thing that I think is, well, what's the cup? He says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but if it's your will, I will drink it. I will continue. 
You see, the cup represents two things. The first thing the cup represents is the legal and the prescribed mode of execution. So the cup represents the crucifixion. It represents the cross. It's as if someone were to say on death row, I'm about to drink the cup in Florida, that would be the electric chair. It is the, whatever the government standard mode of execution is. And this goes all the way back to Socrates, who says that he had to drink the cup of poison. And then it was a common vernacular to say that if you were receiving judgment and uh, you were on death row, that you were going to drink the cup. And so one of the things that Jesus is considering here is the physical torture and the physical pain that he is about to experience. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to be betrayed. He's already predicted it. And he knows that he's going to be crucified in less than 24 hours. So he's considering the legal and prescribed mode of execution, but that's not all he's feeling, and it's not the heaviest thing that he's feeling. It's not just the feeling of what he's going to experience physically, but it is also the reality that he is going to experience the judgment and wrath of God. That also is the cup. Because actually in Ezekiel 23, we see it spoken that those that drink the cup of ruin are being recipients of God's wrath. Isaiah as well, 51, says that those who receive God's wrath and experience God's wrath drink the cup. And so what Jesus is considering as he's overwhelmed with sorrow is not simply that he's going to experience physical pain on the cross overwhelming, unimaginable physical pain, but that he is going to face the wrath and the judgment of God. And the reality of this causes him to feel so sorrowful that it feels like he's going to die. And we know this because later he is on the cross and he says something very recognizable when he says, my father, my father, why have you what? forsaken me. Because on the cross, he's not only experiencing the physical pain of death, he's also experiencing the reality that he has enjoyed up to this point a perfect face-to-face -face relationship with God the Father. He's experienced the joy and the love and the intimacy and the presence of God as he's both fully God and fully human. And in the garden, he is considering that what is about to happen in less than 24 hours, is he is going to have that relationship severed. The father is going to turn his face away from him. He's going to forsake him. And Jesus is considering this reality, and it feels like he's going to die. Luke's gospel adds a very important detail. Luke's gospel says that when Jesus is in the garden praying, the pain, the emotional pain that he feels is so deep that it causes him to sweat blood. It's actually a medical condition. All you medical people in here, I did my research. Your capillaries don't know what those are, but they can burst when you undergo deep emotional pain, severe pain and shock. Your capillaries can actually burst and cause you to sweat blood. So Jesus is feeling something that is so heavy and so dark that he begins to sweat blood. And so he looks to the father in the garden and he says, my father, let this cup pass from me. It's not just about the physical pain. I don't want to lose this relationship. I don't want to be severed spiritually from you. 
I don't want you to turn your face from me. I know what that's going to feel like. And as he considers this, it causes him deep emotional pain. You see, he's staring at this moment into the abyss, a place where God is not, abs- is not present. He's completely absent. There's no grace. There's no love. There's no hope. There's no goodness. And Jesus knows in less than 24 hours, he's going to drink the cup. He's going to experience that as the father turns his face away from him. And in his flesh, he does not want to experience that. He doesn't want to be severed that way. But he's willing to go into the abyss if it's the father's will. I was considering this week, you know, Jesus, as he, he experiences and he feels this, it, it kind of highlights to us and it makes us realize the reality of who we are as people, right? Our nature, my nature, your nature is to run after the abyss, is to look at a life separated from God because we do it all the time. We make choices all the time that are opposite of the things that God calls as good, the thing that God says will bring flourishing and joy and his presence and love. We have all these promises that we're claiming. And then what do we do? We run after the opposite. We dive into the abyss. And what we do is we dive into the abyss and we call it freedom because we feel like, oh, well, I don't want restriction. I don't want any kind of obedience. I don't want any kind of anything. I want to do what I want to do. I want to follow my desires. And that feels free. And Jesus here in the garden decides, he chooses to follow and carry forward with the mission that the Father has given him to sacrifice his life so that we might actually receive true freedom as he stares into the abyss. You see, the path to your salvation and mine, the path to your freedom and my freedom is through the cup. Jesus has to drink the cup, and he knows it. But it doesn't mean that he's just going into it feeling totally fine about what's about to take place. You see, a lot of times, if you're like me, when you consider Jesus drinking the cup, when you consider Jesus going to the cross on your behalf, you consider your forgiveness. We sing a lot of songs about the forgiveness of Christ. We, can sit, we sing a lot of songs about how Jesus has died for our sins. We, we, pro, we proclaim that. We claim those promises on our life. And this is good news. Jesus has, in fact, gone to the cross for you. He has died the death you deserve. He has taken your sin upon his shoulders, and he's paid for it. As he says on the cross, it is finished. It's done. This is theological terms. This is called Jesus' passive obedience. He has received your sin. He has carried your sin and your shame and your guilt, and he has paid for it on the cross, which means there's no condemnation. There's forgiveness. But that's not the only thing that Jesus has done, and it's not the only thing that we see. You see very clearly here in the garden another aspect of Jesus drinking the cup. And that is that Jesus lived the life that you can't live, but that you should live. Jesus has lived a perfect life for your imperfect life. This is called Jesus' active obedience, that Jesus was perfect. Christ was perfect in place of your imperfection. A lot of times you even hear that said, I believe in Jesus' perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. And you may think to yourself, well, why does it matter that I recognize that Jesus has not only died for my sins, but Jesus has also lived 
the perfect life that I can't live? Why does it matter? And sometimes we think it matters so that Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice so that he could actually pay for the sins that we deserve. That's true. But it's not the only reason. The other reason it's important is because we need Jesus' perfect life applied to us. We need his righteousness because we're unrighteous. Because here's the reality. You can believe that Jesus has died for your sins and still struggle with believing that God loves you. Right? Do you struggle with believing that God loves you at times? Because you know that a father can forgive his son or his daughter, but it doesn't mean that the father adores his son and daughter. And so sometimes what can happen when you don't recognize that Jesus is active obedience, his perfect life has also been applied to you, you can struggle with believing that God loves you because you know that Jesus has paid for your sins, you believe that, you rest in that, but you know you're a mess. And so you feel as if God is looking at you, and he's forgiven your sins, but he sees all of them. And he looks at you like, are you going to get your act together? Like, don't you understand what Jesus has done for you? Why aren't you living different? This would cause a very common thing that happens in the church is you feel like you are not a believer. You doubt your salvation because you don't feel like you're living according to what you believe, right? You're like, I, I, I claim to believe that Jesus has died for my sins, but then I'm making all these choices. I'm, I'm running after things in the abyss and I'm calling it freedom. I'm doing everything opposite of what I know I'm supposed to do. How could God love me? How in the world could God love me? You see, Jesus has lived the perfect life so that he might earn your blessings and he might earn God's love for you. There's two very clear commandments in the Bible that you were to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. That wasn't very strong. And you're to love your neighbor. I want you to raise your hand if you feel like you perfectly love God with everything and you love your neighbor. (laughs) Right? None of us would raise our hand. In fact, most of us feel like we're not loving God with much strength at all. Not loving God with, certainly not loving God with all of your minds, not loving God with all of your heart, not loving God with all of your soul, and barely giving God a little bit of your strength. And you're not loving your neighbor. I don't love my neighbor. You can love your neighbor when your neighbor is easy to love, right? When they're difficult to love, then it's like, well, you know, Jesus died for my sins. <laughs> but Jesus perfectly loved God, and he perfectly loved his neighbor. Why does that matter? Because that's been applied to you. You see, the Father loves you. God loves you because Jesus has lived the life that you can't live. Jesus was perfectly righteous, and so when God looks at you, he adores you because he sees Jesus. What he has done, what he has accomplished wasn't just on the cross. It's how he lived. It's what he does here in the garden. Because you and me are like the disciples. We are sleeping on the job all the time. Right? Look what happens here. It says that Jesus says to them, when he comes back to them, that he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you couldn't watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus goes alone to pray. Peter, James, and John are there. He looks at them and he says, I want you to stay awake for an hour. You know, watch. They know Jesus is about to be betrayed. Like, okay, we got the mission. We got the calling. Great. Jesus is going to go pray. He comes back. One hour later, they're sleeping. Like Jesus at the hardest moment in his life. He's feeling pain and sorrow that feels like he's going to die. He's sweating blood. He's considering the cup that he's about to drink. And the disciples cannot stay awake for one hour. Peter, James, and John have been called out from the disciples. They've given this special mission. They can't stay awake. And so Jesus looks at them and says, are you kidding me? One hour, Peter, James, and John, you're supposed to be like the core here. Get out of here. Go back. Get three more disciples and bring them back. Maybe three other people can do it better than you. He doesn't do that, right? You would expect that. It's ridiculous. They can't stay awake an hour. We're so much like them, right? We've been given a calling. We've been given a mission. We've been given clear directives by God and his word. And yet we immediately give in to immediate gratification, right? You believe in the promise of God. You believe that Jesus has died for your sins. You see God's word. You know that it's good for you. It's going to bring flourishing. It's going to bring joy. It's going to bring hope and God's presence to your life. And you say, yes, I'm going to love God with all my strength, with all my mind and heart. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to obey. I'm going to follow. And then the first thing you do is you choose something completely opposite, right? The first moment you feel like, I'm kind of tired, you know? I know God said this, but I feel like sleeping. That's us. That's me. And Jesus comes back to them when they're sleeping, and he wakes them up, and here's what he says. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He looks at them, and he doesn't scold them. He's patient. He's loving. He says, I know your spirit is willing. I know your heart is I see the desires of your heart, but I also know your nature. I know that your flesh is weak. Salvador Dali rightly said, have no fear of perfection. You'll never reach it. That's us. We need Jesus' perfect life applied to us, not only his death for our sins, but also his life because we are broken. We're weak. We can see the clear directives and the mission that God has for us, and we so often choose something completely opposite. We fall asleep on the job time and time again, and yet Jesus is patient, and he's gracious. And so he tells them, you know, can you, can you stay awake um, this next time? You know, let's, let's try it again. And he says that he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Can you imagine what this felt like? Jesus comes back the first time they're sleeping. He doesn't scold them. He says, I see your heart. He's patient. He's gracious. He says, I I see your heart, but I know your flesh is weak. I'm going to go back again, round two, and I'm going to pray. Can you stay awake? And he comes back and they're sleeping again. This is also like us, right? You experience God's love and his grace. You're reminded that he loves you, that he's forgiven you, that he's patient with you. 
and you endeavor to set forth on a new trajectory and the first chance you get to fall back asleep, you fall back asleep. I'm not going to do this anymore, God. I thank you for your love and grace. I did it again. It's going to be different this time than you do it again. Right? I see your path, God. I'm going to fall off your path. I'm going back to the abyss. Time and time and time again. And here's what happens. When this happens, like the second time, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth time, when you're struggling with the same thing over and over again, this is when you really are afraid that God doesn't love you, right? Because you think to yourself, there is no way. I mean, I can understand maybe God's patient with me one time. He's gracious one time, but I mean, I've messed up a lot of times. And so you feel like, I can't go to church because I'm not at the right place. I can't go to community group because I don't want them to see you know, who I am. I'm going to feel really guilty. I can't read my Bible because then I'm going to feel like a failure because I don't feel like I'm following the things I'm going to read. I can't pray even though I know God knows, but it's, I'm afraid of feeling those certain emotions and feeling God's judgment and feeling like God doesn't love me. So I'm going to really work on trying to improve myself and then I'll come back because there's no way God could love me after I've messed up again and again and again. So Jesus comes back to the disciples after they've fallen asleep the second time. And he doesn't say anything. It says he just goes away and he prays for a third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples who are sleeping and he said to them, he wakes them up, he says, sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus does not scold them. He is patient and gracious once again. He wakes them up. He just leaves after the second time and prays again. And he comes back and he wakes them up and he says, guys, let's get up. You can sleep later. Let's walk together. We're going to move forward together. The betrayer's here. It's time for the next chapter in the story. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't pour wrath out upon them. He doesn't say two times. He says, rise. Get up. Let's move forward. You see, God knows your nature. He knows my nature. He knows that as we've come to believe in faith and the reality of who God is and he's transformed our heart and our mind that there's desires and there's willingness and there's good intentions, but there's brokenness in our life. And we choose the opposite of what we know is good. And in fact, we choose the opposite of what we know is good and we call that good until we realize the effects of it. And then we come back. But so often we come back to God in different times in our life and we're afraid we're fearful because we know that we're forgiven. We claim that promise, but we don't claim Jesus' perfect life because we feel like there's no way God could adore me. There's no way God could love me. God sees what I think and what I do and what I don't do. But the reality is he loves you just as you are through faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. You see, the first Adam, all the way back in the beginning of the garden in Genesis 3, He's in the garden, and God says to him, you're going to have a life of flourishing, perfect relationship with me. It's going to be a life full of joy and goodness and hope and everything you desire. Here's one very clear, simple command. Don't eat of this tree. 
Got it? Got it. We're good. Okay. What does Adam do? Look at that tree over there. Come on, you know, he and Eve go over there, they start talking, they hang out, and then it says they look at the tree and it looks good. Thinks to himself, this looks good. I know God said, like, don't try this, don't eat the tree, don't mess with it, but it looks good. I think it's going to be good. It's going to bring wisdom. It's probably going to provide freedom that God is restricting me from. He's probably actually trying to punish me and keep me from something enjoyable, so I'm going to go after the tree and they eat of the tree. This is our prototype, right? This is us all the time. God gives us his commands and his promises, and he says, here's what's flourish, here's what will bring flourishing and goodness and joy and my presence into your life. It's going to bring you hope. We say, thank you, God, and then we look at all these other trees, and we're like, well, that looks good, though. I'm going to try it. Maybe God's wrong on this one. This looks like it's going to provide wisdom and, and joy and, into my life. But praise God, there's not just one Adam. You see, Jesus Christ is called the second Adam. And he's also in a garden. And he's given a clear but not so simple command. To drink the cup. To not only experience the physical death and torture of the cross, but to walk willingly into God's wrath and judgment where God will sever the lines, God the Father will sever the lines of relationship with God the Son and turn his face from him. And Jesus knows that that is going to feel unimaginably heavy. It is pure darkness. It is agony and terror. And Jesus says, yes, I'll go there. Why? Because he knows that that's what we're destined for. He knows that that's what we'll choose. That's what we choose apart from God's grace in our life, apart from the reality of who Christ is and what he's done. We choose all of these other things and we believe them to be good and we believe that they're going to provide freedom and they don't. And so Jesus endured the wrath and the judgment of God on the cross for you and for me so we don't have to. He died for our sins so that when we die, we might rise. He experienced the severing of that relationship with the Father so that through faith you might experience the presence of God. Jesus drank the cup for your salvation and for your freedom. And when you believe in faith in that, you're not only receiving forgiveness for your sins, you're also receiving Jesus' perfect life applied to you. And so it doesn't matter what you do, what you did this weekend, last week, last month, the thing that you're struggling with time and time again, if you believe in Jesus' perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, you are not only forgiven, but you're loved as you are. I told you that we made it a priority to travel before we had Roman, and we, Jessica and I, decided after our second year of marriage that we were going to travel to China. We were going to backpack China, and so we had the big old backpacks, and we went all around the country. It was an amazing experience, great food, wonderful culture. We just loved that experience, and we were on the last day of the trip, and we're getting ready to head home, and we're dreading it, right, because it's a 15-hour flight back. I don't do well with that. You know, we had economy tickets. I'm terrified. You know, I'm on the last clothes that I have, and so we're in the airport with these huge bags, and they're stuffed to the top 
we get up to the gate and we hand them, you know, the, the flight attendant and we hand them the uh, passports and entering in the information. And then he's, I'll never forget this. He goes, Mr. and Mrs. Brown, are you okay with first class? Um, yes, <laughs> we are. Doesn't say anything else, just gives us a ticket. But then we're walking, right? We're walking through the security to the gate. And we're like, do we hear that right? So like scanning the ticket, like, is there any information on here? That would be like a golden ticket, you know? Like, no, it's like a normal ticket. We can't like decipher whether or not it's different. And so the whole time we're doubting it. We're like not really sure, like, maybe we didn't hear him at first class. Like, what? So we get to the gate and we're sitting there and we're like kind of nervous because we obviously don't look like we belong in first class. And they say, we'd like to welcome now our first class customers and all these people in suits get up and they, they head over there and we're like, all right, we'll try it. You know, so we walk up and we hand them our ticket like, welcome, Mr. and Mrs. Brown. And I'm like, my dreams come true. So we walk down the gate. You get a special entrance on these big planes. So we're like, wow, you know, hand, hand the uh, flight attendant once we get on the plane the tickets. Welcome, Mr. and Mrs. Brown. Would you like some champagne? Yes. Okay. So we go to our seat. It's not a seat. It's like a small living room, you know, and you're there. And you get in the seat. And I'm like, she comes up to me in the very beginning. And she says, would you like steak and eggs for breakfast? I'm, yes. And then she comes over later. She's like, where would you like your wine from? Which region? I'm like, where am I? So I'm sitting there, I'm just enjoying the whole experience. I mean, the 15 hours went by like that. I'm opening all the compartments, I'm putting the socks on. You know, I got the whole thing going on. And when we landed, I looked at the flights and I said, let's turn around and go back. Like, I mean, I'll do another 15 hours. But I'll tell you, it took a little bit to get used to because it was very clear that we got upgraded. Like, we didn't earn the ticket. We didn't purchase the ticket. We kind of were given the ticket. We didn't look like everybody else. Everybody else had seats. They weren't even putting the socks on. I was like, it's like they've done this so many times. They're reading the newspaper. I'm like, we got movies on like a big screen TV. What's going on? So you kind of felt out of place, you know? But here's what was amazing. Every single person in the first class cabin got treated the same. Why? Because they all had the ticket. They all had the same exact ticket. It didn't matter what you look like. It didn't matter how many times you've been in that cabin. You were all treated the same. And I want you to hear something. If you have the ticket that is Jesus Christ, you are treated the same. It does not matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you've experienced. It doesn't matter whether or not you feel like you aren't deserving of being in his family. If you believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you have the ticket and you are treated equally with grace and with patience and with love. Because Jesus has not only died for your sins, his perfect life has been applied to you as well. So you may struggle with feeling like, I don't really know if, if is it really, could it really be true? Did I really hear that through faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, I'm given salvation? and forgiveness, and love, and freedom in Christ? Yes. And it doesn't matter if you come to church, or you go to a community group, or you spend time with other Christians, and you feel like, man, they look like they've been doing this for a long time. I feel kind of out of place. 
you are treated equally by God and you are welcome because you have Jesus who is your ticket. You see, Jesus is not just a good role model. He's your substitute. He has substituted his life on the cross for you, which means your sins are paid for and his perfect life is applied to you. And when you know that, when you believe that, when you claim that, it causes you to desire to live after Jesus's model because you know you already have the ticket. You're already in. You're welcome. You see, Jesus really is the man of sorrows so that you and me might be people of praise. Will you pray with me?